Good morning again. Please uh, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Uh, Before we read that together, let's pray together one more time. Our Father, you are good. You are gracious and kind and compassionate. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might know you, that we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross on our behalf. And we pray, Father, that this morning you would pour out your Spirit on us, that you would give us minds to understand the gospel, give us hearts to receive it, Father, that you would draw us close to your Son, Jesus, and draw us close to yourself this morning. We confess, Father, that in our own strength we can understand nothing, but we need you, and we need your Spirit at work in us, and so we pray that your Spirit would be at work this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This world was meant to be ruled by a king. Now, I know that most of us in this room, at least, are Americans, and we threw off kingship long ago. 
But kingship is a part of God's design. We tend to think of Advent or Christmas as about the birth of a baby, which of course is true, but really it is about the birth of a king, a king who demands our allegiance. Kingship is necessary, by the way. Uh, the, the book of Judges tells us why. The end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, when people have no allegiance to something or someone higher than themselves, everyone's allegiances compete. Conflict and chaos is the result. You might think, well, okay, but we don't have a king in our country, but we don't have complete chaos. Right, we, have a, we have a different form of government, and well, what's wrong with that? Well, on the one hand, of course, nothing. Every government, Scripture says, that exists has been set up by God in His providence and goodness. But there are lots of governments in the world, and those governments tend to fight and to squabble and to war with one another. Well, why is that? Well, again, because they have no common Allegiance to anything higher than themselves. And yet one day, believe it or not, even the governments of the earth will bow down to King Jesus. But we're not there yet. And today we live in a world with many competing allegiances, and Matthew writes his gospel to make us disciples, followers of King Jesus, those who submit to his Authority. The church, then, the people who follow Jesus, becomes an, an alternate society with an alternate allegiance to an alternate king. Matthew writes to turn our ultimate allegiance away from ourselves, our civil government, or any earthly thing, and turn it toward Jesus the King. Jesus does not come as a mere teacher or a self-help guru or a life coach or a buddy or a friend or a pal. Jesus comes as a king, a king to rule and to reign. And we don't always understand that. Sometimes we have a wrong view of authority and we don't always like it because sometimes we have a rebellious disdain for authority. But the baby Jesus comes to claim our allegiance. And this is where Matthew will end his gospel. You know, Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20, Jesus says there, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The book of Matthew ends with King Jesus sending out the twelve to make disciples. But the very first words of Matthew's gospel tell us that this is where he's going. They give us a picture or a glimpse of this king in his glory. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1. And our outline, which you can find on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along, is that we each are to bow our knee 
to this glorious King Jesus because he has come as King to bless all people with mercy and rest. Bow your knee to King Jesus because he has come as King to bless all people with mercy and rest. So first, bow your knee to King Jesus because he has come as King. You know, sometimes discovering your heritage uh, can be life-shaping. Other times it can be rather dull. Uh, In fact, in one episode of the the TV show show Frasier, he and his brother Niles discovered something that they think means that they are descended from Russian royalty. And they're real excited throughout the episode until in the end where they realize they were actually descended from a Russian scullery maid. (laughs) And they go from haughty to humbled in a matter of seconds. Well, Matthew begins his book with Jesus' genealogy. And because of our, I think, pretty radical individualism, uh, genealogies mean less than they ever did in history. But Jesus' genealogy, if we, if we pay attention to it, it shows us who he is. And for starters, Matthew tells us that Jesus, right from the start, is the son of David. Now, David was the great king of Israel. He was the second king after Saul, but he was the king whose line continued down through the rest of Israel's national existence. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a warrior and a worshiper. He defeated Goliath and gave us the Psalms. But what is important for our purposes is God's promise to David. God promised David he would raise up David's offspring after him. And that offspring, God said, would sit on the throne forever. God would be his father, and he would be God's son. This promise forms the the heart of the hope of Israel that God would raise up another David, one who would restore justice and reign forever. What Matthew is telling us right from the start is Jesus is that one. He is the son of David, and he has the genealogy to prove it. He is the son of David, who is the son of God. And he has come to reign over Israel as great David's greater son. Israel believed that this son of David would bring great blessing. And so later in the story, Matthew tells us that blind men cry out by the roadside as Jesus passes by, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And on Palm Sunday, the children sang out, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save us, son of David. Jesus came as a king, which meant in the minds of Israel, not that he came to oppress, but that he came to bless. Not that he came to destroy, but that he came to save. Which brings us to our next point. Bow your knee to King Jesus, because he has come as king to bless. When we think of kings or governments of any kind, blessing is not always the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, Dictators can be harsh and cruel. Governments, we think, take our taxes, promising a happy life, but often failing to deliver. The first thing that comes to mind when we think of governments is not blessing, but maybe slick politicians who are looking out for themselves. It's easy to be tempted to think that government itself is bad. But that would be a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of God's purposes for government and Certainly a misunderstanding of the rule of King Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus came as the son of David, a king, 
And he came as the son of Abraham to bless. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. God called him out from among the nations. God chose him and his offspring after him. God promised to bless Abraham and all nations through him. And so to say that Jesus is the son of Abraham is to say that he is the child of the promise who has come to bless. If you read through the book of Genesis, one of the great themes is this child of blessing. In the the beginning, God promises that a, a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And throughout Genesis, we, we follow through the genealogies and births, looking for this one to come, waiting for him, hoping for him, longing for him to come and relieve us from the curse. We long for this child to come who is going to come and make things right. So to say that Jesus is the son of Abraham is to say that Jesus is that child, the child of the promise who comes to bless And yet, who does he come to bless? And how will he bless them? Well, let's keep going. Uh, Bow your knee to King Jesus, because he has come as king to bless all peoples. Gathering different people together is difficult. Uh, We naturally gather with those who are like ourselves. And uh, part of that just makes practical sense. If you're gathering together, you're probably gathering for a reason. Uh, You're gathering around some common commitment But the result is that we normally spend time with people who are 99% like us with little differences. Jesus comes to gather all kinds of people. And yes, there is some common commitment. It's our common commitment to him. But aside from that, the, the church is to be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is implied already in the title, Son of Abraham. Uh, Again, God promised to bless Abraham and all nations through him. And so Jesus is the Son of Abraham who has come to bless the nations. But you see this further in the, the four women in this genealogy. In fact, there's a lot to say about these four women. Uh, Really, they'd be worth their own sermon series just by themselves. Uh, These four women are Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, called here the wife of Uriah. These women are noteworthy for a number of reasons. For one, they're women. And uh, in a first century genealogy, it, it probably won't surprise you to hear me say that women usually didn't feature in ancient genealogies. But not only are they women, they're, they're actually all likely Gentile women. That's not entirely certain. We don't uh, know about Tamar, but she is definitely treated as an outsider. Rahab is a Canaanite, a resident of Jericho. Ruth is a Moabitess. And again, we don't actually know Bathsheba's ethnicity, but her husband, who is the one actually named, is Uriah the Hittite. So Moabites, Canaanites, Hittites, all there in the family line of Jesus. But these women were not outliers in the history of Israel. They are central to the story of God's people. Tamar bears Perez for Judah. Rahab houses those who spy out the land. Ruth becomes the the great-grandmother of King David. And Bathsheba bears Solomon, the son of David, who builds God's house. In fact, it's fair to say when you actually read their stories that apart from the efforts of these women claiming their place among the people of God, there would be no redemptive history. 
What's the point then of including these women here in this genealogy? Well, one of the points is this. God's promises have always been for Gentiles. Gentiles have always been included among the people of God. That is, it's never been about one ethnicity, just the Jewish people. God's promises from the beginning were for all nations. God's promises were for all people, and so Christ's kingdom is for all people. He has come as king to bless all people, meaning all kinds of people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, you, you see th- these, uh, the stories of these women echoed later in the Gospel of Matthew with the Canaanite woman. Uh, you, you may or may not remember that story, but she comes to Jesus seeking help. And he says, I, I think testing his disciples, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she responds, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, she works her way into the people of God. That is, she claims God's blessing by faith. And Jesus commends her. And he commends her faith. Because Jesus, of course, as king, has come to bless all people. And what this means is, whoever you are, uh, whether you're black or white or Hispanic, whether you're North American or South American, whether you're Russian or Ukrainian or Iranian or Chinese or North Korean, Christ has come to bless the nations. And so that includes you. Bow your knee to King Jesus, because he has come as king to bless all people. He's come to bless all people with mercy. When we think of kings and rulers and politicians, we tend to think in terms of justice. Uh, These are people who make and enforce laws. And restoring justice is certainly a part of the role of a king. But before that, Jesus must bring mercy. Mercy is what we need. Deep in our hearts, we know that we are broken, that something is wrong with us. We are not what we should be. We have failed to live up. We know that we are guilty and need grace. And if you read through this genealogy, one thing is absolutely clear. This genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, is full of sinners. King David was an adulterer and a murderer. Abraham was full of fear and ready to compromise his wife rather than face danger in his life. Judah bore children through a prostitute. Solomon Despite God's law, married many foreign wives and went after their idols. Rehoboam was an oppressive king who lost half of his father's kingdom because of his oppression. Abijah walked in all the sins of his father, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. Asaph relied on the king of Syria rather than relying on God. Jehoshaphat allied with Ahaziah, the wicked king of Israel. Joram practiced idolatry. Uzziah was arrogant and proud. Ahaz practiced idolatry and burned his sons as offerings. Hezekiah, too, was proud and boasted in his riches. Manasseh built altars to the host of heaven in the house of God, burned his sons, and consulted fortune tellers and mediums. Amos simply walked in the wicked ways of his father, and Jeconiah did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, you get the point. Jesus was born into a world of sin, and he was born into a family of sinners. Now, Jesus was not sinful. He knew no sin, Scripture tells us. Not even his enemies could bring a charge against him. 
But out of his mercy, he came to sinners. Jesus will say later on in Matthew, I did not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to show mercy. And how would he do that? How would he show mercy? Even that is hinted at here, at the very least, that God would save through unconventional and unexpected means. That uh, would begin, of course, with Mary. You know, when you look at Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, you don't think these are model women to save the line of promise. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. Even Ruth, who by any standards was upright, may have been suspect by some because of her nighttime proposal to Boaz. And in each case, the children of promise come through unorthodox means. And notice then near the end of the genealogy, we read this, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Not Joseph, the father of Jesus. I mean, that's the pattern of every other verse except that one. And throughout Jesus' life, it seems likely that his conception was wrapped in mystery, if not scandal, for his fellow Jews. His conception in the womb of Mary was anything but orthodox. But this time, as with Ruth, there was no sin. Rather, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this most unlikely of births only leads to a most unlikely of lives, which culminates in a most unlikely of saving acts. Jesus goes to the cross, a scandal, to be cursed in our place. Jesus came as king to bless all people with mercy by bearing sin on the cross, to bear our scandal and our shame, that we might find forgiveness in him. And and yet Jesus not only acted to secure mercy in the cross, but Jesus is merciful. Jesus was nothing if not compassionate in his life. The, The gospel writers repeatedly tell us that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He looks on the weeping widow with compassion. And do you ever wonder where Jesus learned that? I I noticed something in the genealogy uh, this week that I had never seen before. I knew that Boaz was the husband of Ruth, and he was clearly a compassionate guy. He looked out for the widow and the alien and the stranger, but I never noticed that Boaz was the son of Rahab. Where did Boaz learn to be compassionate to aliens and strangers? probably as he saw people treat his mother with contempt as an outsider, and as he saw his father treat his mother with respect and welcome her as one who belongs. There's a story there that I think we we won't hear told until heaven. Where did Jesus learn to be compassionate? Well, uh, you might say he's God. (laughs) But he became a man, and in his humanity he grew in wisdom, Scripture tells us. And so where did Jesus learn to be compassionate? Maybe by seeing people treat his mother with contempt for getting pregnant out of wedlock. Maybe by seeing his father treat his mother with respect and love her despite what others thought. However he learned it, what we need to know is that Jesus is a king who comes to show mercy. He offers mercy to you and to me He comes to call sinners to repentance, which means he comes to call sinners to himself, to turn from sin and to him. 
and you are a sinner. Jesus comes to call you to himself, that he might show you mercy as you turn to him in faith. So bow your knee to King Jesus, because he has come as king to bless all people with mercy and rest. You know, forgiveness is not all that we need. This world has been turned upside down by sin. Our, our work is frustrating. Relationships break down. Society lives in rebellion against God's ways. War and hunger and poverty, self-destructive behavior, things need to change. And we long for change. You know, we live in a time, I think, when people seem to want to make the world a better place. And we should applaud any genuine efforts to make that happen. But even as we see advances here or there, we also see losses. Some things get better, but other things get worse. This age is characterized by futility. We don't just need to improve the age in which we live. We need the coming of a new age. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. And so Matthew says in the last verse here, verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now this seems, I think, maybe odd and insignificant to us, but of course it's anything but insignificant. Before I explain that, I need to say at at least something about ancient genealogies in general. Uh, Matthew has not listed every name in Jesus' genealogy. He is selective. Uh, the, The phrase translated father of can easily be translated ancestor of. So the point is not uh, that one-to-one, but that this is the line. Matthew is picking out certain people in that line to highlight. And so there is some shaping here of the genealogy. And and precisely because of that, it's maybe all the more odd that there seems to be only 13 names in the third section, unless you count Jeconiah twice. There are a few explanations of that, which I, I won't go into at the moment, Uh, The more interesting question is, why 14 generations? Why is this even important to Matthew? Why why does it matter, this scheme of 14, 14, 14? I think the best explanation uh, is this, that Matthew begins talking about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, already that actually echoes the creation story. Maybe not to us, uh, but the word genealogy is the Greek word also for Genesis. So you could translate this, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. So you have this creation context where Matthew, like John, but in a different way, is bringing us to the beginning, in the beginning of his gospel. You have this creation context, and within that, why would the number 14 be significant? Well, because 14 is is 2 times 7. And 7 is a highly significant number in Scripture. The world was created in seven days. The seventh day was a Sabbath rest to God. So three fourteens then is actually six sevenths. All right, you following me? I'm not good at math, so I'd be lost by now, but I have it written down. (laughs) That means that Christ is the one who ushers in the seventh seven. That is, Jesus brings the Sabbath. The Sabbath is quite a controversial thing in the life of Jesus. In fact, the the hatred of the Pharisees was in part due to what they perceived as Jesus' loose observance of the Sabbath. 
Part of Jesus' response, of course, was to declare himself Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath belongs to Jesus. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is the one who brings the true Sabbath rest. He is the one who restores shalom, peace. By his death on the cross, Jesus bears the sin that marred and broke this world. And in his resurrection, Jesus enters into, new, into a new existence, the, the Sabbath age, the age of peace and rest. And this peace manifests itself when we are reconciled to God. It makes itself known in the church when we are reconciled to one another in Christ. And this peace will come in fullness when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Jesus brings a new age, the age of the resurrection, the age of Sabbath rest. We enter into that now by faith, but we will enjoy that in fullness at Jesus' return. So bow your knee to King Jesus, because he has come as king to bless all peoples with mercy and rest. Now you might ask, okay, I get it, Jesus is king, Uh, what does it mean to bow my knee to him? Well, let me very briefly point out three things. First, it means rejoicing in his salvation. We bow before him to worship, to marvel, to rejoice in what he has done. If you know that Jesus is the king who has conquered sin and death to bless his people with mercy and rest, meditate on that and marvel at it. And if you don't know that, let me encourage you to repent and believe that today, that you too might find mercy and rest in Jesus. Second, bowing our knee to him means we obey his commandments. At the end of Matthew, Jesus sends out the twelve to make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. So by the phrase, bow your knee to him, I, I simply mean to acknowledge that he is king. His commandments are our delight, and so seek to obey Jesus in everything that you do. Third, serve him with your life. Now, I mean something more than obey him here. I guess it's not really different, but it seems so. So I'm making it a, a separate point. There are some people who seem to obey Jesus' commandments. They aren't living in some scandalous sin, but their lives are not oriented towards serving King Jesus. Now, by that, I don't mean you have to all become missionaries. But I mean what Paul meant when he says in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So whatever you do, work for the Lord. He is your king. Your life is no longer yours. Rejoice in his salvation, obey his commandments, and serve him with your life. As you read through this genealogy, do you see the glory of Jesus? He has come as king to bless all peoples with mercy and rest. He does that through humbling himself by becoming a man, having compassion for sinners and bearing that sin in the cross, and then bringing new life through his resurrection. He is our king, a king who came to bless. Bow your knee to King Jesus. He has come as king to conquer sin and death, to bless all peoples with mercy and rest. And those are yours through faith in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us a clear 
sight of Jesus, that you would open our eyes, that you would clear away uh, all that would blind us, clear away all the, the reasons and excuses that we have for not wanting to see Jesus for all that he is. Give us faith by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would trust in him, that we would rejoice in him, that we would obey him, and that we would live for him day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.